Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. If you want to know why we preach expository messages and expository series, it's so that you don't get to skip over anything that God has spoken to us. Which means today we are preaching about slavery in the Bible. Specifically, God's laws about slavery. Very touchy subject, and it's a very difficult subject because of our own past in America and also just a general understanding of the value of freedom, as well as understanding that God's word is true, and how do we reconcile those two together? And we know that every word is profitable, and so that's why we preach it. So Exodus chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And then maybe a few verses out of the next part of the passage. We were going to go through the whole chapter up to verse 27, but I cut that in half. So if you read that in preparation, it's just too much there. So Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And just some background. God has just given them the Ten Commandments. They didn't want to hear God's voice anymore because they were afraid. So now God is speaking to Moses directly, giving him further judgments. Verse 21, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. So that's God speaking to Moses, the Lord speaking to Moses. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them, the Israelites. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. If you skip down to verse 16, it says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. <clears throat> then in verse 22, uh, sorry, and in verse uh, 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod, so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. And look at verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of this male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. This is the word of the Lord. Faith is easy when it says, love your neighbor. Faith in the word is harder when it says, beat your slave. But God spoke both of those. So the first thing we do when we approach a passage like this, which automatically sets us an edge, is ask ourselves, do we believe the Bible or not? 
Because if you don't believe the Bible, what's the point? So, it's not as bad as it sounds. I can tell you that. Because I approached it and I thought, this is terrible. I can't believe I have to preach this on Independence Day. But then I studied and I realized, oh, God is good and his law is good. So we're going to get from that first part to that second part. So the context here is God gave them the Ten Commandments, which summarized all of their duties. Now he's explaining it. He's applying it. So he said, uh, here's how you should do things generally. Now here's how you should do things specifically. So it says, thou shalt not steal. Well, we need some more specific examples to learn how to run a nation. So this is a new section. The judgments shall be set before you. One of the things that's really important to understand is that there's a need for judges. The, the average person, the, the, the member of the Israel, Israeli community was not supposed to read this and apply it. The judges were. Remember a few chapters ago, it's been a couple months ago, when the people were lined up to speak to Moses and his father-in-law Jethro said, there's, you're doing too much work? What was the problem? This was the problem. These were principles that need to be applied in specific instances. Our judges do it today. The law does not cover every single instance of your life. So judges interpret it. And if you read through the old, whole Old Testament, the idea of a just and a fair judge is very prominent. God condemns Israel for having unjust judges because of the power they hold. So when, you, when you're reading this, this, this always had to be applied by a judge. And secondly, it had to be taken as a whole. You can't take one verse out. You have to take the whole law together. Because often God says one thing and then says another thing that bounds that first thing in place. And if you only take one side, you unbalance it. So the whole law must be taken together. Remember we talked about this before, the Ten Commandments must be taken as a whole. You don't get to pick and choose. So it is here. And then finally, the law is a schoolmaster. Meant for a particular people at a particular time. This law right here we're talking about was given to Israel in the desert to live in the nation of Israel. And after A.D. circa 33, it no longer binds on anyone. Once Christ introduced a new covenant, you can't follow these laws faithfully. This is the old covenant. This is important because one of the biggest problems in America today as we become a secular nation is the world reading passages like this and then using them against Christians by saying, well, doesn't your Bible say this? One of the ways we answer that is to say, first of all, this is not written directly for Christians. This is written for Israel. So in a Christian nation, if there were such a thing, we would not follow this law. This was for Israel. And this law was given to do what? To help the people of Israel in their broken, hardened state, as Jesus says, the hardness of their heart, to lead them to Christ. And now that we've gotten to Christ, we don't go backwards. Okay, so those are some caveats. So in this passage, 21, 1 through 11, he talks about slavery. Now, it strikes us as wrong that God would even have laws protecting slavery of any sort. But let's put this in context. At this time, if you had laws, if you've heard like the law of Hammurabi, you know where, where laws regarding slaves were put? The very end. Why? Because no one cared. What does God do? The first thing he does is deal 
with the most oppressed or the most vulnerable portion of society. So just notice that. God is first addressing, he says, now that you're going to apply the Ten Commandments, who do we apply it to first? The people who are most likely to be exploited. Now, what does this slavery mean? Old Testament slavery is so different from what we think of as slavery that it really shouldn't even be called the same thing. It's unfortunate that that term has been conflated. First of all, Old Testament, the slavery he's talking about here is voluntary. So when you think of slavery, what do you think of? American slavery, right? You, you, you draw up images of slave ships and slave markets, movies you've seen maybe, or pictures. Okay, that, all of that happened thousands of years later. This goes back to a time when it's different. So first of all, slavery in the Old Testament, in, in the Mosaic Law, was voluntary. How was it voluntary? Well, first of all, you couldn't take people and put them into slavery. Look at verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. In other words, if America followed Old Testament law, then every single slaveholder, from Jonathan Edwards to Benjamin Franklin to George Washington, would be executed. Every single one of them. Now that changes things, doesn't it? If you look at this and say this is slavery, it's slavery that you can't force anyone into. That's what American slavery, that's one of the reasons American slavery is so bad is because we kidnapped people from another country and brought them here and then sold them. This says if you kidnap someone or if that person is found with you, you're dead. You see how that changes fundamentally the nature of what he's talking about? You can't force anybody into it. Secondly, it was economic. There are two reasons that you would go into slavery. You wouldn't be forced into it, so why would you choose to go into it? Debt. Poverty. You didn't have any money. You owed somebody money. What do we do today? We borrow money from a bank or from family or friends. But back then, there were no banks. You handled your finances poorly. You didn't work right. You didn't do the right thing. You went into debt. Now what? You would sell yourself into slavery to pay the debt. Or secondly, crime. Chapter 22 and verse 3, it says, if the, uh, if the sun has risen on him, it says, if a thief is found breaking in, and the sun has risen on him, there should be no guilt if he's killed, he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. You stole something, you can't pay it back, what happens? You have to work it off. So those are the two reasons you went into, slavery, into what the Bible calls slavery or servitude. You owed people money, or you stole something from it. It was what we call economic bondage. There were no prisons. You see, if you steal something today, you go to prison. Back then, you worked for the person you stole it from. So when we talk about this, you don't just switch out the words. Understand that we're talking about something different. God did not allow a slave trade to exist. Well, he condemned it. He allowed it to make up for economic balances. So what does he say? If you buy a Hebrew servant. Now notice the word Hebrew. He doesn't use the word Israel. Israel was an ethnic or a um, tribal name. The sons of Israel. Hebrew is a much bigger term. Now why would he use that here? Because Egyptians went with him. Foreigners were with him. In other words, he was protecting everybody in the community regardless of their ethnicity. Regardless of whether they're Egyptian or Israeli. 
So if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and the seventh shall go out free and pay nothing. Another difference between this and any other kind of slavery we know is it was done after six years. And you can tell what it was there for. He said, he's seventh, he should go out free and pay nothing. Why would a slave have to pay? Because he owed money. This is saying no matter how much money he owed, after six years, he was done. Whether he owed 10,000 shekels or a billion shekels, six years he was done. There was no perpetual slavery. It was forbidden. To hold somebody after six years was kidnapping, and you'd be killed for it. So there was a limit on how long you could serve. The idea of a lifetime of service forced on someone is anti-law here. You go out as you come in. If he comes in by himself, he should go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife should go out with him. One of the horrors of the American slave trade is the splitting up of families. They would rip families apart. It's one of the most horrible things. You can put up with a lot if you're with your family. It's unbearable to be separated by force. So he's saying here, if he has a wife, you don't separate him. Now, if the, it, it does make a caveat that if the master has given him a wife, he can't take her. Now, why not? Because that person owes the master money. So what would the man have to do? He would wait. No more than six years to take his wife. Now, there's an example of this in the Bible. You remember Jacob? That's what Jacob did. He put himself into bondage for Rachel. So that's an example of this working out. He was supposed to get that wife when he left, but he got her sister, so then he went into another seven years. So this is an example of that happening. And then here's something interesting. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. We can't comprehend of a slave wanting to stay that way because we only think of it in American terms. And there was, the way American slavery worked, no slave would choose to stay that way because it was so horrible. But this was different back then. And so a servant could choose to stay with two things. He chose of his own free will. He voluntarily decided. And it had to go before the court system. It says, then his master shall bring him to the judges. You see how important judges are? They would say to the servant, say, do you want to stay? The master did not go and say, he wants to stay. He had to go. And why would he stay? Because he loved the master. And we're going to see that as a reflection of our service to God. Now, there's some other protection that God puts in place, and they all have to be taken together. There's no abuse allowed. Look in verse, chapter 21 and verse 20. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he should be, surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he should not be punished, for he is his property. Maybe the most controversial verse, wouldn't you say? So let's think about it for a minute. Why would you beat someone? It's punishment, right? Don't think of American slavery. That's not what he's talking about. Think of a system with no prisons. You know that corporal punishment was common until not that long ago? You know if you joined the Navy and you didn't do what you were supposed to on the ship, you know what they would do to you? They would beat you. Why? What else are you supposed to do with a sailor on a ship? So 
when you understand this, compare it to what we do to people of the same status. And then ask yourself, would you rather go to prison for five years or have a punishment through flogging? You see, we're okay with putting people in prison for five years, basically destroying their lives. But we balk at this. We punish people through making them second-class citizens, through depriving them for years from their family. Do you know what it's like to talk to your family through glass? Do you know what it's like to not be able to vote? To not to be able to get a job? To be hardened by the prison culture? You see, we overlook things because it's normal to us. So we look back at the Old Testament, it's different, so we look down on it. But what this is saying is that an immediate punishment for wrongdoing was done and it was over. But there were still protections. If you killed the person, you would be killed. Now, when it says there, he is his property, it's not what you think. It's not what we call chattel or owning people. He says, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished. Why wouldn't he be punished? Because the person who's doing the work for him wasn't working. Who paid for that man to work? So in other words, by beating your servant, you were depriving yourself of money. That property there doesn't mean owning a person. It means owning their work. It means the money value that you would lose by doing that. In other words, this doesn't really apply directly to us in a lot of ways, but it helps us understand what God was talking about. And when people use this against Christianity, we have to understand what God was talking about. He was not saying it's okay to own people. He was actually protecting these people. Then in verse 26, he goes further. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now, what would a judge do with this? Now, one of the principles in understanding the Bible and the law is that it would give general examples that you would apply to specific situations. So, for example, if he didn't knock his tooth out, but he cut his finger off, would you say, well, the law doesn't say anything about cutting his finger off? No, you would apply it. What it's saying is anytime you physically damage someone, they're done. They're free to go. You see how that changes the whole concept of what we're talking about? Any scar you leave on them, any damaged limb, they're free. They immediately go free because you hurt them. God is putting protections in place. Now, would we do the same thing? It doesn't matter because we don't live 3,000 years ago in a Near Eastern culture without the system and structures we have. What God is saying is you take care of your people in a way that they are never damaged. They're never hurt. Corporal punishment is not as extreme as we think because we do it to our children. Do you beat your children? No. We spank them. Oh, well, that's okay. But if you ever damage your child, that would be different, wouldn't it? Okay, so put that in the context of a country without without an incarceration system. How would you maintain order among your workforce? This is a way to do it. But God says you can't just do whatever you want. These are my people that I saved from slavery. You don't get to hurt them like that. And if you do, they're free. They don't owe you anything. You would wipe the debt clean. Compare that to what America did. Frederick Douglass, 
on July 5th, 1852, spoke on Independence Day in a, uh, in a speech called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And he describes what it looks like to be a slave in America. And compare that to what we just read. Mark the sad procession as it moves wearily along and the inhuman wretch who drives them. Hear his savage yells and his blood-chilling oaths as he hurries on his affrighted captives. There, see the old man with his locks thinned and gray. Cast one glance, if you please, upon that young mother whose shoulders are bare to the scorching sun, her briny tears falling on the brow of the babe in her arms. See, too, that girl of 13, weeping, yes, weeping as she thinks of the mother from whom she has been torn. Follow the drove to New Orleans. Attend the auction. See men examined like horses. See the forms of women rudely and brutally exposed to the shocking gaze of American slave buyers. See this drove sold and separated forever. And never forget the deep, sad sobs that arose from that scattered multitude. Tell me, citizens, where, under the sun, you could witness a spectacle more fiendish and shocking. Yet this is but a glance at the American slave trade as it exists in the ruling part of the United States. Then he makes it even more personal for us. I lived on Philpot Street, Fells Point, Baltimore, and have watched from the wharves the slave ships in the basin, anchored from the shore with their cargoes of human flesh, waiting for the favorable winds to waft them down the Chesapeake. There was at that time a grand slave mart held, kept at the head of Pratt Street. Agents were sent to every town and county in Maryland, announcing their arrival through the papers and on flaming handbills headed cash for Negroes. These men were generally well-dressed men and very captivating in their manners. The fate of many a slave is dependent on the turn of a single card, and many a child has been snatched from the arms of his mother by bargains arranged in a state of drunkenness. Does that sound like what God was talking about? That sounds exactly like what God was trying to prevent. When you don't follow God's law, that's what you get. When you deny and reject God, that's what you get. Unfortunately, it was Christians that were doing that. If we want to be Americans, let's be Americans. If we want to celebrate our history, let's talk about our history. And let's see how God's way restrains evil and how man's way spreads it. There's no abuse allowed. But it's even better under God's law. You see, Douglas continues under uh, what he calls the fugitive slave law. It was a law in America where you could hunt down slaves that had run away. The power to hold, hunt, and sell men, women, and children as slaves remains no longer a mere state institution, but is now an institution of the whole United States. The power is coextensive with the Star Spangled Banner and American Christianity. It wasn't just in the South. You can now hunt them in the North. Where these go may also go the merciless slave hunter. Where these are, man is not sacred. He is a bird for the sportsman's gun. Some of these have had wives and children, dependent on them for bread. But of this, no account was made. The right of the hunter to his prey stands superior to the right of marriage. And to all rights in this republic, the rights of God included. For, black man, there is, for a black man, there is neither law, justice, humanity, nor religion. The fugitive slave law makes mercy to them a crime and bribes the judge who tries them. The minister of American justice is bound by the law to hear but one side, and that side is the side of the oppressor. Let this damning fact be perpetually told. Let it be thundered around the world that in tyrant killing, king hating, people loving, democratic, 
Christian America, the seats of justice are filled with judges who hold their offices under an open and palpable bribe and are bound in deciding in the cases of a man's liberty to hear only his accusers. We justly hate that kind of slavery. Now listen to what God says. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, when he talks about this, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. <coughs> Did you get that? If you were a slave in the Old Testament and you didn't like it and you ran away, wherever you ran to was required by law to protect you and help you. In other words, if you got tired of being a slave, you just walked away from it. And anyone that brought you back was punished. God wanted to protect people. He couldn't change their hearts with the law, so he protected them. Unfortunately, in America, we rejected God's law, and we got horror and evil. So when we talk about slavery, let's make sure we distinguish between what's in the Bible and what happened in America. But it gets even better. You see, if you were sold into slavery, it was because you made mistakes. It was because you lost money or because you committed a crime. God didn't want to just punish people or use people to exploit or to build up wealth. What did he want to do? He wanted to change people. He wanted to rehabilitate them. And what does a poor man need? He needs to sit under somebody who's not poor, who will help him, who will train him, and then who will set him up for life, who will set him up for a new start. That was the law that God set up. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, has sold you and served you six years, then the seventh year you should let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You see what happened? A man steals from you. He serves you for six years, and when it's done, you give him stuff to set him up for his new life. Compare that to what America does. Not only do you go to jail, you're then put into a situation where it's very, very difficult to succeed. Talk to someone who's been in jail, who comes out as a felon. How does their life look? You've seen the movie Ant-Man, or when he's in the, in the second movie where he's working at the, the shop, the ice cream shop, and he has to lie about his name because he was a prisoner. And as soon as the boss finds out that he was in jail, he fires him. That's America. You see what God's law says? He says, you take of your own stuff and you set him up for business. You rehabilitate him. I don't care if he stole from you. I don't care if he owed you money. Once he's done, you take what you have and you make it so that he doesn't have to go back into slavery. So that he can be free forever. So he can be productive and healthy. God's law was better than America's law. In America... Culture has changed us, not the Bible. You know why we're against slavery? Because everybody else is too. We're not against slavery because of the Bible. You know why? Because we still follow the same guys who were okay with slavery. What has changed? What theological point has changed in the past 200 years? 
So why are we different? Because culture is different. Because the world is against slavery, so we're against slavery. Not because we read the Old Testament and realized the horrors of it, because we just raised that way. How do we know this? Because we are indifferent or ignorant of modern-day slavery. The prison system is a modern form of slavery. The prison system is a modern form of slavery. You break the law, you go to jail. But we're okay with the fact that the modern prison system is growing exponentially in our lifetime. There's been a 500% increase in prison population in the past 40 years. Do you think there's been a 500% increase in crime in your lifetime? Why are there, is there a 500% increase in prison population? Maybe because the same reason that people sold and bought slaves, for greed. You know that prison industry is privatized? You know that businesses bid out to build prisons? And you know what the sole purpose of a business is? The same as that of a slave trader, to make money. America had slavery because America was greedy. And the reason the population is grow, the prison population is growing is because there are greedy companies that want to supply the building materials, that want to supply the surveillance systems, that want to provide food. And businesses want to grow. And so they lobby in Washington, and they get politicians to let them build prisons. And once you have a prison, what do you need? You need prisoners. So America has created ways to put more people in prison. It used to be that you put violent people in prison. But now only one-third of prisoners are violent. The rest of them are in there because they had too much weed on them. And now their lives are ruined. Is that justice? What does God say? God says if you steal a car, you work for the guy who st- you st- whose car you stole. And then when you're done working for him, he gives you a car. And he gives you work. America says you go to prison for five years and you can't get a job afterwards. You can't even vote afterwards. I hope you didn't get mixed up with a gang inside. You see, God says let's rehabilitate them. You know, in America, it says if you go to prison, your life's done. There's a 77% arrest rate within five years of leaving prison. If you send someone to prison, you're basically condemning them to a life of crime. You say, well, they committed the crime. No, no, that's what man's wisdom says. What does God's wisdom say? God says rehabilitate them, help them, not make them second-class citizens. Why doesn't this bother us today? Same reason slavery didn't bother them back then. You see, we like to say that slavery is behind us. No, greed's not behind us. Pride's not behind us. How do you defeat greed, pride, self-centeredness? You look at the word of God, and you reflect on your own situation. What do we need to do as Americans? We need to look at the word of God, see how he cared for oppressed people who made bad decisions. You realize everybody in this passage had made bad decisions? They had broken the law. They had spent all their money. They'd made terrible decisions. And God says, how are we going to handle that? We're going to make it so they can't make those same decisions in the future. Sex trafficking is a modern-day slavery. You know the I-95 corridor is a route for sex trafficking? 
You know how far I-95 is away from us? New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Richmond. Drugs and people are trafficked up and down our county. Do we care? We care like people in the North cared about slavery in the South. They were against it, but it wasn't in their town, their city, their state. They didn't see it. You know why the civil rights movement worked? Because Ibo Kay said, I'll show you. I'll show you pictures of the dogs attacking the people. You know why America didn't care? Because they didn't love their neighbor. And you know why you don't care about prisoners? Because you don't love your neighbor. You know how I get you not to love your neighbor? I'll get a brown guy with tattoos on his face. Put him in jail. I don't care. I'll get a brown guy with tattoos on his face who killed somebody. Oh, now we don't have to love him anymore. Now he's just a gang member. Show me a drug dealer. Don't have to care about him. Show me a thief. Don't have to care about him. Show me somebody who can't handle their money. Don't have to care about them. Who is my neighbor? Who can I get out of loving? What is the story of the Good Samaritan if not God saying, who cares why he was beaten? You still have to help him. Let's be honest. If you're white and you are exactly who you are and you lived 150 years ago, you'd probably be for slavery. Let's be honest. Why do we keep on bringing up the past? To show us how bad people are so that we don't get the idea that we're any better than the people in the past. It's not to cause division. It's to show us that we are divided. We are already divided. You know how many people were for slavery in the South? All the white people. You say, well, only 10% owned slaves. Yeah, but all the slaves were owned. Where would you be if you were down there? Well, it depends on the color of your skin, doesn't it? Now, where would you be now if you were in the wrong neighborhood, the wrong family? Would you be in prison? Would you be regulated away from the good people so we don't have to care about you anymore? And if not, do we love people in jail enough to speak out against oppressing them? God goes on, because if there's, if there's someone more oppressed or vulnerable than a man who's a slave, it's a female who's a slave. And so he, in verse 7, he says, if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she should not go as the males do. Now, why would a man sell his daughter to be a slave? Simple. In a patriarchal society, women had no options except to marry someone rich. But if you're a poor dad, what do you do with your daughter? You try to get her engaged to a rich man. That's what this passage is talking about. But God says, wait a minute, that's dangerous. That is, that is how you sexually exploit people. So what does he say? He puts things in place. He says, if she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He sends her back to his fam her family. He shall not send her to a foreign people, since he has de dealt deceitfully with her. Who's the problem in this situation? The one with the power. You see, when a situation goes wrong with someone in power and someone not in power, God says the person with power is responsible. doesn't matter what the other person did. It doesn't say why she didn't displease him. 
why she didn't do what she was supposed to. It says he was wrong because power brings responsibility. And God is putting up justice. He's saying here's laws to protect those without power. If she's given to his son, then she shall be treated not as a slave, but as a daughter. He shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. And you treat your daughters differently than you treat other people. A slave girl would be treated like a daughter. God is saying you can't oppress people. And if he takes another wife, which was allowed at that time, but potentially exploitive, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. The minute the person in power does not do what's right, the deal's over. Does it maybe not sound so bad to live in this society where every single person is protected by law regardless of their status, where everyone's taken care of, where no one's allowed to be exploited? Now, all of the prophets talk about a society where that didn't happen. Do we seek the same level of care for the vulnerable women as God does? Do we care about vulnerable, vulnerable women as much as God does? If we're honest, of course we don't. Look at your checkbook. Look at your schedule. Look at your heart. We don't care. Out of sight, out of mind. What's the point of all this passage? It's not just to say how bad America is. What's the purpose of the whole law? It's the schoolmaster to do what? bring us to Christ. That's it, to bring us to Christ. It's not to go back to the Old Testament. The law was to say, look how bad people are when they get power. And the law couldn't restrain them, so it points you to something better. It points you to Christ. And where is Christ in this passage? Look back. It says, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. This master shall bring him to the judges. She shall also bring him to the door. And he shall pierce his ear with an awl. You know who that's talking about? Yeah, it's immediately talking about them, but it's talking about God's people. Psalm 40 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not, did not desire. My ears you have pierced. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. My ears you have pierced. Why would you want to serve someone your whole life? Because you love that person. And why would you love them? Because they care for you. There's no person on this earth that you could truly love enough to want to serve them your whole life. So what did God do? He said, serve me. I'll take care of you. Why would you serve God forever? I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. You delight to serve God forever because you love him. And if you don't love him, you won't serve him. This is pointing forward to a master that you would want to serve. It's pointing forward to Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are bond servants. We are slaves to Christ. Christ has said slavery is bad because people are bad, but I'm not bad. You're going to want to serve me. And if you don't want to serve God, if you don't want to serve Christ, it's because you don't know who he is. 
If the idea of serving Christ with your whole life forever sounds restrictive, it's because sin has blinded you to who Christ is. See, Christ is the husband in this passage who buys the female slave and doesn't mistreat her. See, we're already slaves to sin. And Christ says, no, I want you for mine, so I'll pay for you to be my bride, the bride of Christ. He didn't have to do that. We voluntarily chose to go into sin. And Christ says, I'll buy you back. I'll treat you right. I'll care for you. You're going to want to be with me. But as if that wasn't enough just to see the beauty of Christ, he serves us. See, Christ is not only the master here, he's also the servant. And one of the most paradoxical, revolutionary statements in the world is that the creator God, Lord of all, serves his own creation in a way that no slave master on earth has ever done. Slavery is oppressive because people are self-centered and they exploit other people. And so Christ says, I'll be a master who is, who is exploited for the slaves. And Luke, he says, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Can you imagine that? The master comes home and the slaves are ready to present his meal to him. He says, no, no, you sit down. I'll serve you. I'll wash your feet. I'll care for you. The one who has all power, setting aside all power, to serve us. This is a name for Jesus. He is Lord, but he's also servant. Isaiah 52 says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. How shall he deal prudently? And chapter 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What do slaves do? They carry things for their masters. They carry things for other people. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A, a master who deserves our undying eternal devotion dies for us serves us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Human slavery exploits people for other people, but Christ exploits himself for other people. He gives up his own body for the servant. He becomes the one who says, I'll be beaten so you don't have to. I'll be killed so you don't have to. I'll serve you because you can't serve yourself. Then he says, now that I've served you and sacrificed for you and saved you and bought you, now I'd like you to serve me. And if you see Christ for who he is, you will gladly do that. You will jump at the chance to serve that kind of master. And if you are not jumping at the chance, it's because you haven't looked at Jesus. You are distracted by something else. You're distracted by the church. You're distracted by people. You're distracted by something that's happened to you. You are not looking at Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you're going to say, I'll do anything for that person. 
anyone that would do that much for me, it's a reasonable sacrifice to give back to him. God is teaching the Israelites and teaching us that justice is good, but mercy is better. It's not do right. It's love your neighbor. God didn't require justice of us. He loved us, though we were slaves. He loved us. Do you love him? Let's pray.